It's the Victorian Variety Show. In the art of cookery, a great advance has necessarily taken place, and radical changes and new methods have been introduced. Cookery is now a study of the many, and not of the few. And to its aid have been brought all the contrivances that modern invention and ingenuity could devise, to render the work of the cook more satisfactory and less laborious. New ranges, new culinary apparatus for saving labor, and new dishes are invented almost daily. Still more remarkable is the advance made in the scientific department of cookery. The improved knowledge of the chemistry and economy of cookery enables us at the present day to prepare food upon sounder principles and rules. To meet this advance in science, to introduce the newest modes of serving meals, to embody the improvements effected in every branch of domestic economy, in fact, to give the public all that time and labor could bring together to make Mrs. Beaton's work as valuable today as it was when first published, this new edition has been compiled. The worldwide renown of household management is not at all surprising, even to those who are but slightly acquainted with its merits. But the present editors, who have carefully examined it line by line, page by page, for the purpose of revision, cannot but express their unqualified admiration of the marvelous skill, care, and labor bestowed on the work by Mrs. Beaton and the thoroughness apparent in every detail. They can easily understand her statement in the preface to the first edition that, had she known the labor it would have cost her, she would never have undertaken the work. Even the task of its complete revision has been one of far greater magnitude than the editors could possibly have foreseen. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that often don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Or maybe they received considerable attention after they originally appeared, but evolved over decades, in which case I believe it's a good idea to get as close to the source as possible, to get a better idea of what might have been there since the start and what might have been added later on, possibly by someone or something that had no relation to the original phenomenon, which is what I intend to do in this week's episode. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read was taken from the preface to the 1888 edition of the Book of Household Management, originally written by Mrs. Isabella Beaton. As I mentioned in my previous episode two weeks ago, this book has been revised many times since it first appeared in the fall of 1861. And you can easily purchase a copy from the online book vendor of your choice, or maybe your local library has a copy. Libraries are special places, and they need our love in this day and age. You could also go to your friendly neighborhood bookseller if you still have one. You get the idea, hopefully. In addition to hundreds upon hundreds of recipes and comprehensive chapters on managing household health, rearing children, and even prescriptions and remedies for a wide variety of injuries. The Book of Household Management contains a 
very large number of colorful illustrations of fish, fruits, desserts, and other delectable items that caught my eye two years ago before I'd ever put out a full episode of this podcast. However, even though I'm mainly going to look at the 1861 version of this book, since that was the edition Isabella Beaton was most directly involved in, for reasons I'll get into in a few, I also thought it would be a good idea to look at a somewhat later version for purposes of comparison and to get a taste of why this book was such a success for years after its initial publication. And I will include a link to both versions in the show notes. And for the 1888 version, the archive.org website gives 1899 as the publication date, but if you look at page Roman numeral 8 of the actual text that was scanned in, it says 1888. And I will also leave a link to my previous episode, in which I focused on Mrs. Beaton, the woman behind this voluminous text. And if you haven't listened to that yet, I would highly recommend that you check it out. But if you can't do that right now, I get it. So here's a quick recap. The origins of the book of household management can be traced back to the late 1850s, when Isabella, who was in her early 20s, was writing the cookery column for the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, which was published by her husband, Samuel Orchard Beaton. Even though many of the recipes that were included in the column were taken from other sources, including chefs who were popular in the 18th and early 19th centuries, and most of the recipe sources were not properly cited, which has caused some controversy over the years, the layout of the recipes, which included helpful information like lists of ingredients, prices per serving, cooking times, and the like, seems to have been a fairly significant departure from the way prior recipes had appeared. And also, Isabella's writing has been described as clear and systematic, which seemingly appealed to thousands upon thousands of middle to upper class women during the Victorian era, who, unlike women of previous generations, were living far from their homes, either in cities or in faraway lands, since this was the height of the Industrial Revolution, as well as a time of widespread imperialism and colonialism, when a lot of women were accompanying their husbands who were traveling to faraway lands and often settling there. And as a result, these women did not have mothers and aunts to call upon for advice on performing household tasks. The column soon became so popular that in 1859, the Beatons decided to offer 24 monthly supplements to the magazine that included recipes and household management tips, and two years later compiled these supplements into one comprehensive volume, which was expanded upon in subsequent editions to the point that you might see editions that are almost 2,000 pages long. To give you an idea, the 1861 edition that I included a link to is 1,186 pages long, which is nothing to sneeze at in my opinion, and the 1888 version consists of over 1,800 pages. Unfortunately, Isabella was not able to enjoy the book's long-term success, as she died shortly after giving birth in February of 1865 at the age of 28. And a year later, Samuel, who was facing bankruptcy, sold the rights to the book. So updates were made by a number of journalists over the years. And eventually, 
mentions of Isabella's untimely death were suppressed for marketing purposes, so that Mrs. Beaton essentially became a brand, and, according to Wikipedia, later versions of the book bore less resemblance to the original. From what I can see, most of the 1899 version was intended to stay somewhat true to the original, because the writers go on to note the following in the preface. Quote, it will not be surprising that a work so thoroughly planned and so admirably executed was found, with the exception of one or two repetitions, to contain nothing that could properly be omitted. The editors, accordingly, are pleased to state that none of the recipes have been taken away. On the contrary, the book has been greatly enlarged, the size of the page has been increased, and 360 extra pages have been added, thus making the new book nearly half as large again as the former edition. In fact, no pains have been spared to make this standard work replete with the latest and fullest information on all matters relating to the home." End quote. However, they do note that the doctor's section at the end was, quote, entirely rewritten by an eminent medical authority, end quote and go on to include a short summary of additions and revisions made from the original. For the remainder of this episode, I am going to read a few excerpts, mainly to give you a taste of Isabella Beaton's writing style. I'm going to keep commentary to a minimum because I like my listeners to formulate their own opinions, but I would like you to keep in mind that even though Isabella accompanied her husband to the office on a regular basis, she was a rarity because in general, middle to upper class women didn't work outside the home. So, even though the writing in this book will likely sound dated to those of us in the 21st century, in the second half of the 19th century, this book largely gave these women more power and influence in the domestic sphere that they occupied. In addition, in spite of the Book of Household Management's information on managing household health, which understandably might give you the impression that the book was geared toward wealthy women, Isabella does seem to be regarded as an advocate of household economy, which I think helps to explain why this book was such a success among middle-class women as well, and hopefully you can see this in the first excerpt I'm going to read, which is from chapter one of the book, titled The Mistress which gives us all sorts of tips on how the mistress of a home should behave in her day-to-day -day life and when entertaining and paying social visits. Quote, On the important subject of dress and fashion, we cannot do better than quote an opinion from the eighth volume of the English Woman's Domestic Magazine. The writer there says, Let people write, talk, lecture, satirize as they may. It cannot be denied that, Whatever is the prevailing mode in attire, let it intrinsically be ever so absurd. It will never look as ridiculous as another, or as any other, which, however convenient, comfortable, or even becoming, is totally opposite in style to that generally worn. In purchasing articles of wearing apparel, whether it be a silk dress, a bonnet, shawl, or riband, it is well for the buyer to consider three things. One, that it be not too expensive for her purse. Two, that its color harmonize with her complexion and its size and pattern with her figure. Three, that its tint allow of its being worn with the other garments she possesses. The quaint fuller observes that the good wife is none of our dainty dames, 
who loved to appear in a variety of suits every day new, as if a gown, like a stratagem in war, were to be used but once. But our good wife sets up a sale according to the keel of her husband's estate, and, if of high parentage, she doth not so remember what she was by birth, that she forgets what she is by match. Two brunettes, or those ladies having dark complexions, silks of a grave hue are adapted. For blondes, or those having fair complexions, lighter colors are preferable, as the richer, deeper hues are too overpowering for the latter. The colors which go best together are green with violet, gold color with dark crimson or lilac, pale blue with scarlet, pink with black or white, and gray with scarlet or pink. A cold color generally requires a warm tint to give life to it. Gray and pale blue, for instance, do not combine well, both being cold colors. The dress of the mistress should always be adapted to her circumstances and be varied with different occasions. Thus, at breakfast, she should be attired in a very neat and simple manner, wearing no ornaments. If this dress should decidedly pertain only to the breakfast hour, and be specially suited for such domestic occupations as usually follow that meal, then it would be well to exchange it before the time for receiving visitors, if the mistress be in the habit of doing so. It is still to be remembered, however, that, in changing the dress, jewelry and ornaments are not to be worn until the full dress for dinner is assumed. Further information and hints on the subject of the toilet will appear under the department of the lady's maid. The advice of Polonius to his son Laertes in Shakespeare's Tragedy of Hamlet is most excellent, and although given to one of the male sex, will equally apply to a fair lady. Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man." End quote. Next, I'm going to read you a few recipes. Again, because Isabella is known to use other people's recipes and not credit them, which I'm not a fan of because I don't believe in plagiarism as a general rule. I don't know who originally came up with these recipes, but I wanted to give you a feel for the beaten recipe layout, the helpful information that was included, and the little poems and anecdotes that accompany a lot of the recipes. And even though I'm reading from the HTML Project Gutenberg version for purposes of readability, the print in the Internet Archive versions, which are scanned, are very light and the print is pretty small, I would recommend that you look at the actual online text because in addition to those beautiful, colorful graphics that I was talking about that I'm just infatuated with, there are also a lot of cool, smaller graphics called engravings next to a lot of the recipes. Also, unlike the separate articles in the mistress selection that I read a few minutes ago and the one that I'm going to read later on from the doctor chapter, in which the articles that I read do appear in the book one after the other, the ones I took from the recipe section do not appear together. The one on lobster appears in the fish and seafood section. The one on cafe au lait appears in like the coffee beverages section. 
for the recipes, I just kind of took together three that kind of jumped out at me. They're, I like the way they were written or they sounded really good to me. So I just wanted to clarify that the recipes that I read in this episode did not appear together in the book, but the articles that I read in the other sections did appear one after the other in the book. Quote, lobster patties and entree. Ingredients, minced lobster, four tablespoonfuls of bechamel, six drops of anchovy sauce, lemon juice, cayenne to taste. Mode, line the patty pans with puff paste and put into each a small piece of bread. Cover with paste, brush over with egg, and bake of a light color. Take as much lobster as is required. Mince the meat very fine and add the above ingredients. Stir it over the fire for six minutes. Remove the lids of the patty cases. Take out the bread, fill with the mixture, and replace the covers. Seasonable at any time. Local attachment of the lobster. It is said that the attachment of this animal is strong to some particular parts of the sea, a circumstance celebrated in the following lines. Not like their home, the constant lobsters prize, and foreign shores and seas unknown despise. Though cruel hands the banished wretch expel, and force the captive from his native cell, he will, if freed, return with anxious care, find the known rock, and to his home repair. No novel customs learns in different seas, but wanted food and home-taught manners please. Toasted cheese or scotch rarebit. Ingredients. A few slices of rich cheese, toast, mustard, and pepper. Mode. Cut some nice rich sound cheese into rather thin slices. Melt it in a cheese toaster on a hot plate or over steam. And when melted, add a small quantity of mixed mustard and a seasoning of pepper. Stir the cheese until it is completely dissolved. Then, brown it before the fire or with a salamander. Fill the bottom of the cheese toaster with hot water and serve with dry or buttered toasts, whichever may be preferred. Our engraving illustrates a cheese toaster with hot water reservoir. The cheese is melted in the upper tin, which is placed in another vessel of boiling water, so keeping the preparation beautifully hot. A small quantity of porter or port wine is sometimes mixed with the cheese, and if it be not very rich, a few pieces of butter may be mixed with it to great advantage. Sometimes the melted cheese is spread on the toasts and then laid in the cheese dish at the top of the hot water. Whichever way it is served, it is highly necessary that the mixture be very hot and very quickly sent to table, or it will be worthless. Time, about five minutes to melt the cheese. Average cost, one to one half denarius per slice. Sufficient, allow a slice to each person. Seasonable at any time. Café au lait. This is merely very strong coffee added to a large proportion of good hot milk, about six tablespoonfuls of strong coffee being quite sufficient for a breakfast cupful of milk. Of the essence number 1808, which answers admirably for café and lait, so much would not be required, 
This preparation is infinitely superior to the weak watery coffee so often served at English tables. A little cream mixed with the milk, if the latter cannot be depended on for richness, improves the taste of the coffee, as also the richness of the beverage. Sufficient, six tablespoonfuls of strong coffee or two tablespoonfuls of the essence to a breakfast cupful of milk. Tea and coffee. It is true, says Liebig, that thousands have lived without a knowledge of tea and coffee, and daily experience teaches us that, under certain circumstances, they may be dispensed with without disadvantage to the merely animal functions. But it is an error, certainly, to conclude from this that they may be altogether dispensed with in reference to their effects. And it is a question whether, if we had no tea and no coffee, the popular instinct would not seek for and discover the means of replacing them. Science, which accuses us of so much in these respects, will have, in the first place, to ascertain whether it depends on sensual and sinful inclinations merely, that every people of the globe have appropriated some such means of acting on the nervous life, from the shore of the Pacific, where the Indian retires from life for days in order to enjoy the bliss of intoxication with cocoa, to the Arctic regions, where Kamshat Dales and Koryakis prepare an intoxicating beverage from a poisonous mushroom. We think it, on the contrary, highly probable, not to say certain, that the instinct of man, feeling certain blanks, certain wants of the intensified life of our times, which cannot be satisfied or filled up by mere quantity, has discovered, in these products of vegetable life, the true means of giving to his food the desired and necessary quality. End quote. Just a quick note, uh, some of these recipes had a lowercase d, which I looked up and it said online that the full term was denarius for British penny or pence at the time. I did try to look it up, but I am not knowledgeable on this area. So if anybody needs to correct me on that, please feel free because I want to know the correct way to cite this going forward. Finally, I wanted to give you a sample from a section toward the end of the book called The Doctor, which I mentioned earlier in this episode, which includes a list of drugs and prescriptions in the beginning and gives advice on a very wide variety of ailments, ranging from nosebleeds to bites and stings to cholera to styes of the eye to apoplexy, which is what strokes were called back then. I chose the ones I'm about to read mainly because I feel they reflect attitudes that were prevalent in medicine in the 1860s, especially the section on quote-unquote hysterics. And all I'll say about that is that I find it interesting that quote, young, nervous, and unmarried, end quote, women are distinguished from married women. And also that men are mentioned kind of a nudge-nudge, it looks to me. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I just want to stress that I do not recommend actually trying any of these remedies. Quote, fainting fits are sometimes very dangerous and at others perfectly harmless. The question of danger depending altogether upon the causes which have produced them and which are exceedingly various. For instance, fainting produced by disease of the heart is a very serious symptom indeed. Whereas that arising from some slight cause such as the sight of blood, etc., need cause no alarm whatever. The symptoms of simple feigning are so well known 
that it would be quite superfluous to enumerate them here. The treatment consists in laying the patient at full length upon his back, with his head upon a level with the rest of his body, loosening everything about the neck, dashing cold water into the face, and sprinkling vinegar and water about the mouth, applying smelling salts to the nose, and, when the patient is able to swallow, in giving a little warm brandy and water, or about 20 drops of sal volatile in water. Hysterics. These fits take place, for the most part, in young, nervous, unmarried women. They happen much less often in married women, and even, in some rare cases indeed, in men. Young women who are subject to these fits are apt to think that they are suffering from all the ills that flesh is heir to, and the false symptoms of disease which they show are so like the true ones, that it is often exceedingly difficult to detect the difference. The fits themselves are mostly preceded by great depression of spirits, shedding tears, sickness, palpitation of the heart, etc. A pain, as if a nail were being driven in, is also often felt at one particular part of the head. In almost all cases, when a fit is coming on, pain is felt on the left side. This pain rises gradually until it reaches the throat, and then gives the patient a sensation as if she had a pellet there, which prevents her from breathing properly, and, in fact, seems to threaten actual suffocation. The patient now generally becomes insensible and faints. The body is thrown about in all directions. Froth issues from the mouth. Incoherent expressions are uttered, and fits of laughter, crying, or screaming take place. When the fit is going off, the patient mostly cries bitterly, sometimes knowing all, and at others nothing, of what has taken place, and feeling general soreness all over the body. Treatment during the fit. Place the body in the same position as for simple fainting, and treat, in other respects, as directed in the article on epilepsy. Always well loosen the patient's stays, and, when she is recovering and able to swallow, give 20 drops of sal volatile in a little water. The after-treatment of these cases is very various. If the patient is of a strong constitution, she should live on plain diet, take plenty of exercise, and take occasional doses of castor oil, or an aperient mixture, such as that described as number one in previous numbers. If, as is mostly the case, the patient is weak and delicate, she will require a different mode of treatment altogether. Good nourishing diet, gentle exercise, cold baths, occasionally a dose of number three myrrh and aloes pills at night, and a dose of compound iron pills twice a day. As to the myrrh and aloes pills, number three, ten grains made into two pills are a dose for a full-grown person. Of the compound iron pills, number four, the dose for a full-grown person is also 10 grains, made into two pills. In every case, amusing the mind and avoiding all causes of overexcitement are of great service in bringing about a permanent cure. End quote. That's my very brief examination of Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management. I don't think it's possible to scratch the surface in one podcast episode or even a few podcast episodes, and that wasn't my intention anyway. I would highly recommend that you check out the copies in the links I included, 
And if you ever have the opportunity to get your hands on a copy of the real thing, even better. Although it looks pretty heavy to me and I can't lift a lot, so good luck lifting it. I think it's a very important text to look at if you're interested in getting a better understanding of Victorian era etiquette. Not to mention the roles that middle to upper class women were expected to fulfill during this time and why this book had the appeal that it did. Plus, if you're like me and just enjoy looking at pictures of food, the colorful illustrations are a pure joy to look at. And if you have seen a copy of the book, either online or the real thing, I would love to know your thoughts about it. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. And if you're still on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at the time I recorded this, it was still around. I don't know if it will be at the time you're listening to this, but you can follow me there at Victorian Variety One or on threads at threads.net slash at Marissa DF13. If you would like to support this show financially, there are a few ways in which you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents US per month at SpotifyForPodcasters.com or make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 on my Linktree page or if you're listening on the GoodPods app. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, GoodPods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you found my exploration of the life of Mrs. Beaton and the Book of Household Management interesting. I plan to be back in two weeks with a brand new episode on something completely different that I'm very excited about. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with one more excerpt from Mrs. Beaton's book. I wasn't sure how to close this one out, but this little anecdote, which I found at the beginning of chapter nine, titled Sauces, Pickles, Gravies, and Forcemeats, struck me not only because it was short, because I read so much in this episode, but also because of the style in which it was written, with dialogue that's fun to read, and because I think it gives us another good example of the household economy that Mrs. Beaton advocated. An anecdote is told of the Prince de Soubise, who, intending to give an entertainment, asked for the bill of fare. His chef came, presenting a list adorned with vignettes, and the first article of which that met the prince's eye was 50 hams. Bertrand, said the prince, I think you must be extravagant. 50 hams? Do you intend to feast my whole regiment? No, prince, there will be but one on the table, and the surplus I need for my espagnol, glands, garnitures, etc. Bertrand, you are robbing me. This item will not do. Monsignor, said the artiste, you do not appreciate me. Give me the order, and I will put those fifty hams in a crystal flask no longer than my thumb. The prince smiled, and the hams were passed. 
This was all very well for the Prince de Soubise. But as we do not write for princes and nobles alone, but that our British sisters may make the best dishes out of the least expensive ingredients, we will also pass the hands and give a few general directions concerning sauces, etc.